The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. chant and praise the Zazen. From the very beginning of the Isar Buddha, like water and ice, without water no ice, outside is no Buddha. How near the truth, yet how far we seek, like one in water crying, I thirst, like a child of rich birth wandering poor in this earth, the endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark past to dark past we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is our and Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evil. It purifies karma, dissolving instructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self. We go beyond ego and pass through the words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three straight ahead runs away. Our form now being no form and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is the we outside us? What is the we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth will be the plant as a pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is um, 7th of July 2020 and in a few days we'll be having our annual Matariki Chukai ceremony. And so tonight um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why we receive the precepts, how and also why we do it again and again. Chukai, taking the precept ceremony, is is the most important, the most profound ceremony in our calendar. It's when we, we formally enter the way and remind ourselves about what that means, what it means to enter the way. Because uh, entering the, the way, entering um, Buddha Dharma, isn't just about believing this or that, but sincerely trying to live out of the... Uh, teachings of the Buddha and the precepts are really, you could, one way of thinking of them is that they describe enlightened activity so we're not expected to be um, um, perfect with them 
Um, we, and in fact, it's expected that we'll, we'll need to re-enter the way many, many times as we will s repeatedly kind of like swerve off the road and have to come back. So one way of looking at the Chakai ceremony is it's a kind of a formal on-ramp back onto the, the, um, the path. The precepts are the nearest thing we have to um, an initiation um, as, a, as a, a way follower. Um, I hesitate here to use the word Buddhist because Buddhist is not really a Buddhist word. Um, it was coined in order for scholars, in the, I think in the 19th century, to be able to refer to Buddhism as they would refer to Christianity or Islam or, or Judaism. They needed to, to coin it as an ism. Um, but for, for, for us, um, it's following the Dharma is, is what is important. So what does this ceremony consist of? What does it mean? The different parts mean? Um, we, start, we start off with offerings, then we chant the Heart Sutra, which we've been studying for these last few weeks. Um, then there's a, a part of the ceremony which is to do with repentance. Then we actually receive the 16 precepts um, and then we end up as we do with almost every every ceremony we do with the return of merit four vows three prostrations so just states I'll say just a little bit about um, each of these hopefully we'll have time to just touch on each of them um, Offering. This is what we start off with. Um, those of you who are involved in the book group that we had recently, um, Shanti Davis, the way of the Bodhisattva, it starts off with offering, and then later, uh, or soon after offering, it also has a section on purification, which would, would tie in with our um, repentance part of the ceremony. But why start with offerings? Um, this offering is, is dana to the teacher and so it's, it's a way of expressing gratitude um, for the dharma and more and more research has been done on grat gratitude and um, it's, it's found, found to be um, many many um, positive effects on people's minds um, We are filled with joy when we, we're grateful. Um, we become enthusiastic, receptive. There's, there's um, a natural kind of uh, impulse to, to reciprocate in some way, to rise to the occasion. To pay forward in some way for what one... Um, appreciates and having received. So all of this is sort of putting everybody into the right their right state of mind for what comes after. And the the what does come next after the offering part is the the, the chanting chanting the Heart Sutra. And as we've been exploring on our, our Sunday Dharma study sessions, this Heart Sutra, which we just chanted now, um, in a very pithy, brief form, not even two pages long, um, we have the, the core teachings of our Zen school on, on mind and matter, or we could say form and emptiness, 
the nature of experience set out for us. And, and the, we try to try and sum up what, what the Heart Sutra is saying. It's really that um, everything arises dependent on causes and conditions. Rises and passes away. So, so nothing in our experience is solid or graspable. And yet, at the same time, you can't say that that there's nothing. There's something there. This, um, another quote on emptiness here, which which could be applied to the to the Heart Sutra. Um, the dharmas the Buddha wants us to let go of are the, the dharma of self, the dharma of dharma, and the dharma of emptiness. The Buddha first teaches people that self is empty to keep them from clinging to self. He then teaches them that dharmas are empty to help them to stop clinging to dharmas. Finally, he teaches them that emptiness is empty to keep them from clinging to emptiness and go out and out into emptiness and then, um, in a sense, not clinging to emptiness brings us back to form. And this is where the precepts play out in, they play out in the relative world. They're about, they're about how we relate to each other and to the world. So when we ch- when we chant the Heart Sutra, we're we're reminding ourselves of of this interdependence of all things. Of this, we're reminding ourselves of this fundamental teaching. And more than that, because we're actually chanting aloud, we're, we're embodying the teaching. The sound is coming out of this body of ours. And so we're actually setting up a resonance in ourselves with the, with the, through the sounds that we are articulating when we chant. The, the sutra, the Heart Sutra, ends with the mantra, which is what we were looking at on Sunday. Um, gatte, gatte, para, gatte, parasam, gatte, bodhisvaha. Gone, gone, gone beyond, completely beyond. Awake, rejoice. To, to paraphrase it further, we could say, leaving suffering behind, going beyond suffering, all the way to the other shore, all the way to the other shore of liberation. And then ending up with awake, rejoice. Or perhaps we could even say, let's wake up. Let's rejoice. Or just some exclamation there. Ah, or hallelujah, as somebody suggested on Sunday. One definition of mantra is protection for the mind. And this is one of the ways, one of the angles that we can come at the precepts as well. And to see and understand the precepts as being protective, protective of others' well-being and equally protective of our own minds, our own well-being. Master Shenyan says um, this about the precepts. Upholding the precepts simply means disavowing unwholesome acts and honouring wholesome acts. We perform the ten virtuous actions and avoid the ten non-virtuous actions. 
Maintaining the precepts means practicing morality and letting them guide us to stability and harmony. This is an important point here, that practicing the precepts guides us to stability and harmony. Guided by the precepts, you will check your behavior. And when you break a precept, you will likely repent your action. With practice, your conduct in all situations will improve and become stable and natural. This will reduce accumulation of the causes of suffering, or at least the accumulation of non-virtuous action. So Master Xingyin sees it as being a kind of, kind of a natural process, not something we need to force, but something that um, develops over time, a little bit like um, water dropping on, on rock, just wearing away those um, way of habits of mind and, and body that, that um, are unwholesome, that, that destabilize us and complicate our lives. The uh, Vajrayana teacher, Alan Wallace, talks about the precepts as being like uh, a fence that we put around um, the, the, the little tender seedling of our practice you know, to, to keep the um, slugs out. It would eat, it would eat that, that tender shoot. So we put a fence around it so it can grow strong and straight and then later on we don't need that fence because the plant itself grows, grows stronger. So the, the, the fence is, is related to how our mind works. So, so again, not, the precepts are not commandments. Because we have ten of them, we might, we, we might um, mistake that. But they're, they're more, they're not coming down from on high, but more like uh, responses to how our mind works. I came across um, a, a Maori proverb when I was looking for something else, and it seemed appropriate here, though I could be, could be misinterpreting it. The, the, pro, the proverb, the whakatauki, is Te torino haere whakamua whakamuri. And what it means is at the same time that the spiral is going forward, it is also returning. At the same time that the spiral is going forward, it is also returning. It's very much can be applied to the nature of the universe we live in. What goes around comes around. Keeping the precepts comes out of this understanding that our willed actions, whether of body, speech or mind, uh, sculpt us, they shape us. We, we, we plant seeds in our, in our um, storehouse consciousness, our laya vijnana. This, uh, there's a saying that um, is sometimes attributed to the Buddha, though it isn't actually from the sutras. Maybe something much more recent. In fact, when I checked online, it was wasn't clear, it was attributed to different people and different um, references. Watch your thoughts for they become words. Watch your words because they, for they become actions. Watch your actions for they become habits. Watch your habits for they become character. Watch your character for it becomes your destiny. So to watch our thoughts, watch our actions, watch our speech, and particularly um, to watch our motives, what's behind each of these. 
is what um, Mathieu Ricard says, the French Bajriana monk. The basis of ethics is extremely simple. Nothing is intrinsically good or evil. Good and evil exist only in terms of the happiness or suffering they create in ourselves or in other people. If we adopt a truly altruistic attitude so that we are deeply concerned with the well-being of others, then this becomes the surest guide for our judgment. In our daily lives, we will then be able to see far more easily which actions will bring about more happiness and will relieve more pain. This is direct experience, not a moral theory or a set of predetermined rules. It means paying constant attention to our motives. The mind has been compared to a crystal that takes on the colour of the place where it has been placed. It is neutral. Our intentions determine the true nature of our actions, no matter what their appearances might be. This takes, takes quite a bit of honesty to do this, to undertake this task. But taking the precepts and the ceremony is, is like a... Um, first step in that process. We can, we can hold our lives up to the precepts, even though we don't want to be too rigid about it. We'll see as we get into the individual precepts. So going back to our ceremony, after reminding ourselves of the, of the, the teachings on emptiness by chanting the Heart Sutra, then we move into repentance, which is, we can understand it as being a rite of purification. And in this, in this um, midwinter jukai, the main part of that repentance is the uh, repentance gutter that we, we chant. All evil actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, anger and delusion, arising from body, speech and mind, I now repent having committed. So it covers a lot of ground. From time immemorial, from beginningless time. And, and we chant it nine times. And in, in, then if something's important, you do it three times. And if it's very important, you do it nine times. We repent our, all the actions coming out of motives to do with um, um, self-preoccupation, greed, anger and delusion, the three poisons. So when we do this this gata, we're acknowledging that there is there are these seeds in us that cause trouble. And we're we're saying we want to draw a line under what's happened up to now and not water those seeds further or plant or plant more seeds of stemming from greed, anger and delusion. these um, root passions. So we can understand this, this going through this repentance ritual as being uh, cleaning the slate, saying, okay, okay, I'm going to start again. In, um, in the way that the, in the introduction to these, these repetitions of the gutter, we, we invoke the aid of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So we imagine these beings who have dedicated lifetime after lifetime after lifetime to 
polishing their minds in order to help liberate others. And we, you can imagine this awesome energy pervading the universe, absolute light, unfathomable excellence pervading everywhere. Imagine this energy coursing through the cosmos and we, we ask if we can take part in it. The line that has always struck me the most in this, in this repentance is where we say, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the past were like us and we will in the future become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the past were like us. They struggled. They felt stuck at times. They felt confused. Angry. Resentful. All the, all the flavors of, of hindrance that you can think of. They went through. They kept going. And we will in the future become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. This is just like the little kernel of our um, baby bodhicitta that, that we're cultivating. This little tender shoot that we're hopefully watering. Next, uh, we take the 16 precepts, which is made up of three different parts. The three treasures, the three resolutions, or sometimes called the three pure precepts, and then the ten grave precepts. And we do all of, all of it three times. This, this rep three times repetition comes from some sort of understanding of the way our minds work, where often the first time we, we recite, recite it, we're, you know, we're not really completely hearing what we're saying. My mind might still be on something else, something that just happened, is lingering there, but we're not, we're not fully embodying those words. Second time, maybe it's starting to sink in a little bit, and then we hope by the third time we're really saying with a whole heart. So just to, to peek at, at each of these um, sets of, of vows, we're starting off with the, the three treasures, the three, this is the three refuges. Take refuge in Buddha and, res and resolve that with all beings I will understand the great way whereby the Buddha seed may forever thrive and then I take refuge in Dharma and resolve that with all beings I will enter into the Sutra treasures until it goes <laughs> go halfway through and I get it quite a little bit wrong till my wisdom is as vast as the ocean and then I take refuge in Sangha and its wisdom, example and never failing help and resolve to live in harmony with all sentient beings. These, these three refuges connect us to all the other branches of Buddhism. You find them in Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana and all, all the different schools. And so they're, they're what connect us to the, the Mahasanga, you could say. Um, and there are, we could spend a whole talk just going into the different ways we could understand Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. But the, the important ones for, for us and going into the ceremony, perhaps we could say, is, is just the, the obvious ones of the Buddha Shakyamuni, the, the Buddha of our world cycle, for Buddha, the Dharma is his words, his spoken words, and then the sutras, and then the Sangha was his 
immediate disciples in his, in his lifetime and then the people who have practiced um, down through the ages. Sometimes it's restricted to um, the monastic sangha, but in the Mahayana it's understood as the fourfold sangha that, that lay women and lay men um, would, uh, nuns and monks. But another way of understanding these, these three treasures is um, as our own awakened nature. We take, that's what we're taking refuge in when we take refuge in Buddha. Our Buddha nature. And then in the Dharma is um, the laws of the universe which are both in us and around us. And then for Sangha we could include, really include all people of good will. Everybody in this world of ours who's sincerely making an effort to, to practice kindness and awareness. Or even further, we could say all living beings are our Sangha. And Thich Nhat Hanh points out that in both the Chinese and Vietnamese versions of the of the refuge vows, it includes the the phrase um, in myself at the end of the line. So it reads, "I go back and rely on the Buddha in myself." And the same with Dharma and Sangha. He he writes, adding in myself makes it clear that we are ourselves the Buddha. When we take refuge in Buddha, we must also understand. The Buddha takes refuge in me. Without the second part, the first is not complete. There is a verse we can recite when planting trees and other plants. I entrust myself to earth. Earth entrusts herself to me. I entrust myself to Buddha. Buddha entrusts herself to me. To plant a seed or a seedling is to entrust it to the earth. The plant will live or die because of the earth. But the earth also entrusts herself to the plant. Each leaf that falls down and decomposes will help the soil be alive. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we entrust ourselves to the soil of understanding. And the Buddha entrusts himself or herself to us for understanding, love and compassion to be alive in the world. Whenever I hear someone recite, I take refuge in the Buddha, I also hear the Buddha takes refuge in me. I think this is this is very important to understand this that the that Buddha and Dharma and Sangha are not some remote, lofty uh, powers up above us somewhere, but um, the most intimate aspects of our own hearts. But we forget that. And that's why we need to take refuge again and again, why we do it every day here at the centre. It can be something that if we feel in danger, we can just recite to ourselves, I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha. Or dropping off to sleep, having it be the last thought before you drop, drop off to sleep. Or you can um, bring a koan to mind if you're working on one. Or if you're feeling a bit lost and adrift, I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. Following the, the refuges, we take the three pure precepts. These are really at the heart of the, the 16 precepts. And um, also they can help us to look at the, the 10 precepts from different angles. From, and these are quite important. 
and we'll do a little bit of that in a, in a few minutes. But the three, the three are: I resolve to do no harm. I resolve to do good. I resolve to liberate all living beings, and they sort of um, build on each other. So the first one is: I resolve to do no harm. This one is really about um, weakening, you could say, our, our selfishness. Maybe you could see this being a little bit passive here. But then the second one, I resolve to do good. It's a bit more active. You could say it's more about not, not um, getting us beyond our, our selfishness, but actually cultivating our compassion, altruism. And then the third one, to liberate all living beings, which cultivating something more than, than ordinary love and compassion, but actual bodhicitta in the sense that to, we have to, to liberate ourselves, means li to liberate others means liberating ourselves. So you can see how these, these, these build on each other. So at least we try not to do any harm. But then we do try to do good when we can. And then ultimately we, we practice to liberate ourselves so we can liberate others. So developing unselfishness, developing kindness, and then finally developing a wise heart, bodhicitta. Moving towards a more all-encompassing understanding. And this, is, this um, was just what we discovered when we looked into the Heart Sutra, this emphasis on prajna wisdom, the wisdom beyond wisdom. Bodhisattva of compassion from the depths of Prajna wisdom. So all the emptiness of all five skandhas and sundered the bonds that cause all suffering. Okay, so finally we've made it to the, the ten precepts. Um, and the tense precepts, you could say, are just the three resolutions unpacked a bit, fleshed out. Um, we can already find the, 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 the precepts in, in not so different a form for, for the ones that are in our, our ten, in the, in the Eightfold Path, in the Sheila, or um, morality component, ethics component of the the um, Eightfold Path, they're, they're there in right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And these developed into the ten wholesome and unwholesome acts, which are a little different from the precepts, but, but basically talking about how we speak, act, and think. And the very first of these, these ten is, I resolve not to kill, but to cherish your life. And you could see each of these precepts through the lens of this particular one. So this one is first because it encompasses all of them. But, but tonight I just want to briefly explore the precept in the light of the three resolutions. Not, not to cause harm, to do good, to liberate all living beings. So we have the we have the precept expressed as a negative and then as a positive, I resolve not to kill, and then but to cherish all life. So we can see the first part, the not to kill, as being the, the uh, do no harm part of the precept. And, and we start from that point, from the, from the literal interpretation of avoiding even even the smallest living being, just to take to take this precept 
literally, and this is, goes for all of them, Yasutani Roshi would say, um, you know, it's not like because there's of other interpretations of the precept that we sort of don't value this literal meaning of it, not to kill. But then we can go further than that, we can go to the positive aspect, but to cherish all life. What's the spirit of it? Spirit of not to kill is is to cherish all life. Or as as um, it's put in the in the Juju Kenkai, to refrain from killing the mind of compassion and reverence. To refrain from killing the mind of passion and compassion and reverence. That the this precept is based on our interconnectedness, the fact that we are we're all relatives, we're all kin. But it gets a little more more complicated because um, if it's the spirit of the precept and not just the letter, then mightn't it be necessary at times to kill in order to protect the mind of compassion and reverence? What if there's a, there's a rabid dog running around biting people? Or a, or a, a shooter on the loose in a, in a school? So we, we, we may have to look into past just the literal meaning in order to see what maybe might be right in the situation. And there may be other ways of, of cherishing all life which aren't just about not killing in the in the ordinary way in a sense. But cherishing somebody's life in other ways. Perhaps just listening to somebody could be a way of fulfilling this precept, really listening to somebody, really being receptive, or to teach somebody something, or to practice an art, to, to support the expression, artistic expression in some way. We can think of many, many things that would fit this, this description. To grow food, to cook a meal, to feed somebody who's hungry, to raise children, grandchildren. Then there's a, a third way of, of looking into the, these precepts, these ten which is the, the uh, one mind aspect. So moving into the, the spirit of bodhicitta here, non-dualistic aspect to each. And, and each of these, for each of the precepts, there is a verse which expresses this, this aspect. And for this first one, the verse goes like this. Self-nature is inconceivably wondrous in the everlasting dharma not giving rise to the notion of extinction is called the precept of not killing. So not even thinking in terms of, of birth and death. Not giving rise to the notion of extinction. Just thinking about what, what, how we could apply this right now. And it occurred to me that this, this aspect of the precept might be a very helpful one in terms of the climate crisis, where we're seeing mass extinction already around us, not just due to the, due to the 
heating planet, but many other things that we human beings have been doing. But how to work hard to cherish life by trying to save species from extinction, but to be able to do it without succumbing to the notion of extinction. To have the deep faith that, that nothing is born and nothing dies. Life goes on. Life and death go on. Time is nearly up, so we probably don't have to time, time to go through all five of the precepts that are prepared, but maybe we can just do one more, just to get these um, three different ways of approaching the precepts. And we can go to, um, to number three, I resolve not to engage in harmful sexual relations, but to be faithful and responsible. So the first aspect is the letter of the precept. And, and here, with this one on, on sexual relations, there's a bunch of, I guess you could describe them as being no-nos, prohibitions. But the, the um, main one for, for lay people, for monks it's, it's celibacy, but the main one for lay people is infidelity. And, and then other kinds of pain-producing um, sexual activities, sex with, with a minor, sexual violence, rape, bestiality, anything that, that is um, exploitative would fall in this category. But if we go to the, the second part, to be faithful and responsible, then... Um, it goes further, really. Spirit, what's the spirit of the precept would be no using your partner, no objectifying, not getting resentful when your partner doesn't want to do what you want to do, or, or having your advances rejected by somebody. Then there's the, the other element of this, responsible, being responsible. Somebody suggested you should be sure not to, if you're, especially if you're, if, you're, if you're heterosexual, don't have sex with anyone you wouldn't want to spend 18 years co-parenting with a child. Be careful who you have sex with because there are consequences. It's important to understand that there's nothing inherently, inherently bad or wrong with sex, but it is um, put at the top of the list of our attachments because we have such strong attachments when it comes to sex. After all, we're all the products of sexual intercourse. We all come into this world by means that means. And so it has very strong power over us. Force for attachment. The verse for this one goes, Self-nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the Dharma, where there is nothing to grasp, not giving rise to attachment is called the precept of not engaging in harmful sexual relations. Not giving rise to attachment. Not clinging to our preferences, we could say here. There's a great film called The Kiss of the Spider Woman. And um, in it, there's a, um, two men who are in a prison in South America and uh, two men, one heterosexual man and one gay man and the 
the heterosexual man makes love to his gay cellmate at one point out of compassion as a gift not giving rise to the mind of attachment Unfortunately, we've we've run out of time um, to go through the in detail through the the, uh, the rest of the precepts. But hopefully, people who have got this idea of these different ways of of working with them and coming at them um, they're they're um, considered to be this this whole question of ethics is one that is very that very uh, deep and subtle and so there the precepts are studied at the end of one's one's formal training for this reason but at the same time they're, they're something we practice day by day moment by moment so once we have been through all all or ten of the precepts, then um, finish off with the statement, we're all now members of the Buddha's family. Or we could say we've begun again on the path. We're all now members of the Buddha's family. We're all here because of our karmic affinity with each other on this particular planet this time with with these Dharma brothers and sisters in this sendo in this town in this country there are no accidents just um, to, to finish off um, a quote from a Vietnamese physicist. His name is um, Trinh Xuan Tuan. And this is from um, a wonderful little book called The Quantum and Lotus, and the Lotus, where the physicist and Matthew Ricard talk about Dharma and about quantum physics. And um, here's what Trinh Xuan Duan says. We are all made of stardust. As brothers of the wild beasts and cousins of the flowers in the fields, we all carry the history of the cosmos. Just by breathing, we are linked to all the other beings that have ever lived on the planet. For example... Still today we are breathing in millions of atomic nuclei from the fire that burned Joan of Arc in 1431 and some of the molecules from Julius Caesar's dying breath. When a living organism dies and decays, its atoms are released back into the environment and eventually become integrated into other organisms. Our bodies contain about a billion atoms that once belonged to the tree under which the Buddha attained enlightenment. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.
Sunday, so um, informal considering starting at 4 p.m. on Sunday, and the ceremony itself starting at 5:30 p.m. and then dinner afterwards. Uh, so if you'd like to come for dinner, please do sign up. There's a sign-up sheet um, by the water table, and we will also be decorating for Chikai on Thursday after sitting. So if you can come along and help, that would be great. Just a note about Sunday, we we uh, won't be having the morning sitting at centre, the normal 8.30 to, to 10.30 sitting because the whole place will be set up differently for the Jakai ceremony. But um, we will stream the sitting, I'll just stream it from home, so if people just want to do three, three rounds of sitting, then that will be streamed at the normal time, 8.30 to 10.30 um, on Hikshalai. Oh yes, I got an email from uh, Lasara, who's now moved to uh, Thames. She's coming down to the Chakai ceremony. And um, as she has before, she's um, asked if she could rent a room here at the centre in order to offer people shiatsu. She's a very skilled shiatsu practitioner. And there's three times that she is um, offering for shiatsu 90 minute or 90 minute sessions. And there's a little poster about it out there with her phone number on. So if you're interested in making an appointment with her for that Sunday morning, uh, since she's starting at 10.30, going through until lunchtime. So if you're interested in getting yourself all um, stretched and soothed, then uh, there's information about that out in the, in the other room. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.